Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Meeting of the Minds. Today, I'm here with the great John Quint. John, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Greatly respect your work, all the good things you do. Had a great conversation with Tom Barry from West Side Barbell the other week, and he couldn't stop singing your praises. So I said, I got to get John on the show. And I know I've heard Louie bring up your name many times on different interviews. Yeah, yeah. I've been fortunate. I live in Columbus, Ohio. I kind of have a background in bodybuilding and, and, you know, I'm a neuromuscular therapist. So, you know, Tom and I's path crossed. And then obviously uh, I met, I think Lou right before Tom, but yeah. So it's probably going on over 10 years of, of knowing these guys and being able to work with these guys. So I'm pretty fortunate. Excellent. Excellent. That's great stuff. Now tell me, I guess probably before we get into the specifics, maybe you'd want to set it up a little bit more with, how we should be thinking about the body. Maybe that's a better place to start, right? Is there common misconceptions of the way we look at the body and injury and strength? Maybe let's start there with a little bit of an overview. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way to start it off. I think um, it depends, right? Because when you're talking about like, let's say wrestling, for instance, like the wrestler is going to have a different lens and the coach is going to have a different lens right? And there'll be blind spots in between, you know, what the wrestler sees, what the coach sees. Obviously, that's why there's a coach there. And then from my perspective, I guess, being a neuromuscular therapist, uh, I kind of focus on like the joints, the connective tissue and the muscle. So I kind of work, you know, if you think of the body as a complex system, think of kind of like the components or the determinants of that system is kind of what I try to focus on or assess. And that's kind of my lens of, of, what I see. So when you see a wrestler, you know, you would see traits of a wrestler, let's say this wrestler has a good gas tank, right? So then I'd be like, okay, well, I kind of think of it as they have a really good aerobic base, right? This wrestler has power. Well, then I'll think like, okay, well, this wrestler probably has a lot of fast twitch uh, muscle fibers that, right? And because, you know, training is a mechanism to change the individual. So it's like, obviously how you 
you know, if you're using training correctly, then, you know, the wrestler's determinants are changing how you want them. So I kind of, I kind of view it from, from a, a different perspective where I think about like joints, connective tissue and muscle, whereas, you know, a wrestling coach is obviously going to think about maybe technique, you know, strength and all that other stuff. So there's definitely blind spots from what I can see to what someone like you or a wrestling coach can see. So I, that's why I think it's really good to work in conjunction with everyone. That way you try to fill as many blind spots as possible. Absolutely. That makes sense. And when you're looking at that person, are you looking for certain things right away? I guess we'll start with just athletes in general. When someone comes to you, how, how are you looking at them? What are the things that your eye is drawn to that maybe the average person misses? Yeah. So I've been fortunate. So uh, I teach continuing education as well. So uh, not only am I like a practitioner, but I'm also kind of like trying to always update my model of, of how I work with athletes. And so I work with functional anatomy seminars. And one of the things that we have there is a functional range assessment. So this kind of like assesses the movement capacities of the, of the, let's say a wrestler. So if we just kind of keep a common point, right? So you have a wrestler. So when that wrestler comes in, I kind of want to see like, are their joints in a state of function? Are they in a state of dysfunction? How much joint workspace do they have? Like so how much range of motion do they have? Like, and then I start to piece together from that. So, you know, uh, in, in Columbus, we have a lot of good wrestlers here. So I've been able to assess wrestlers. And then, you know, also with Westside, you know, we have a strong uh, relationship with a lot of uh, fighters in the UFC. So I've kind of seen like, uh, let's say some of the, the common issues with uh, what happens from, you know, uh, grappling type sports, right? Because uh, one of the things that in, you probably know this too, with your background, as you get better at a sport, you're going to start to move away from health unless you're doing something to kind of hedge that, right? And so I look at treatment and training as a way to hedge that specificity that's being developed from that wrestler right so one of the things that i see with with wrestlers uh is starting at an early age and really specializing i'm probably you see this too right and so i use essentially treatment and training as a way to like not to enable that person's nervous system to still specialize but don't give up the joint range of motion the joint function the stuff that on the back end is going to kind of collapse the system when when they don't expect it unfortunately that makes sense. And that, that assessment that you were using, I remember when I was a personal trainer back in, I don't know, 2012, something like that, we were using the functional movement screen. I brought it up to Tom. He said, yeah, that, that's a good thing to know also, but he's more into what you're speaking about here. Uh, what exactly is that? Where can people find information on that? What is the average, can the person do that at home on their own? Yeah. Think? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So think of, think of, um, a functional movement screen, right? Or anytime you're trying to screen or analyze movement, essentially what's happening is uh, if you think of the wrestler as just like joint space, so the amount of space between bones that allows for this bone to move relative to that bone, right? So that's obviously enables them to internally move. So think of that as something that's objective. So you can measure that. So you can start to get data points and say like, hey, this guy has 30 degrees of hip internal rotation, right? So, so that's a stat that you can start to, so because part of the issue is what you've probably seen this and what I've seen running this assessment now for 
uh, probably about five years and getting a lot of data points on athletes is the best athletes compensate for what they don't have. So, you know, case in point, uh, I won't use his name, but, you know, in Columbus, we got a lot of good football players. Well, this guy who was an amazing football player, uh, you know, made it into the league, was able to change positions. It was probably one of the best football players to come through Ohio State. And it's interesting, when I started working with him, I had to really, it was kind of bizarre. It was the first time where I'm assessing someone's hip and I'm like, this hip doesn't rotate. And then it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, man, this guy is, his, his nervous system is so, he, like, he's so good at organizing his movement that he can organize without a hip, right? <laughs> so that's, yeah. It, and then, and then I just continued to see that trend, you know, cause I've been fortunate enough. I've been able to assess like a lot of NFL athletes, pro golfers. So, so a wide range of guys, you know, we got Ohio state here. So some of the Ohio state wrestlers, so before I do a treatment, I have to do this assessment so that I know what I'm going to do. And it's, and it's interesting, like the trend that I just continue to see reinforced is what happens is people don't have functioning joints. Right. And so, and so the, but the crazy part is what you'll see is high level guys, they can pass a movement screen because they figured out how to compensate without that hip, but it's coming at the cost of their knee. So you're talking about like a meniscus at the back, maybe L5 S1 or those lumbar issues. So, so that's the reason why like movement screening, like, like Tom said, yeah, it's, it's like one thing, but the problem is, you know, these high level athletes, especially when you talk about wrestling, you know, uh, I grew up wrestling. I was never that great of a wrestler. Right. But I, I love the sport. And so every year I watch the NCAA tournaments and all that stuff. I mean, these guys are unbelievable, right? Like, like, like it's insane. You think that someone's got a takedown. And these guys are like the scrambling ability. Like, so these guys are just absolutely unbelievable athletes. And one of the bad side about being an absolutely unbelievable athlete is if you don't have, let's say a hip joint at some point in time, you can only compensate for not having that capacity. And, and, and generally the problem is they don't know it if they don't have an assessment. Right. So, so, so to try to answer the questions, I was a little bit long winded. Oh, that's great why I don't do the movement screen because I don't really care how that person organizes themselves to do a predetermined task. What I care is, does this guy have a hip joint? Cause I know you're going to need a hip joint. So if you have one, I don't care how you organize the movement, but if you don't have one and you can organize the movement, that's almost worse for me because I'm going, wow, this guy is so good that essentially at some point you're not going to be able to compensate for that lack of capacity and then that's an, 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 inevitably, unfortunately, when something just blows up and then people really don't have any idea why, but that's why. That's excellent. No, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense when you think about it like that. So what would, a, what should maybe a coach look for that maybe they they don't have the same trained eye as you, but what could a parent or coach kind of take a quick look at to say something's off? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so essentially like what I'll tell people, right. Is, you know, all functioning joints behave the same, but all dysfunctioning joints behave uniquely. Right. So one of the things that happens is if you look at a hip joint, so a hip joint is a ball and socket joint. And essentially really what it means is the ball has to rotate relative to the socket. Right. So an easy thing to do is like, if this hip joint, if, if it doesn't rotate, right? Now you're having issues, right? So like an easy assessment would be 
uh, for a, a wrestler to do is let's say, you know, do your bent knee hip flexion. So when you pull your knee to your chest, like if you're on the ground, you should feel tissue stretching on the backside of that hip joint. If you don't feel anything stretching on the backside of that hip joint, or you feel a pinch in the front, or you're like, I feel this in my low back, you got a hip that doesn't move. Right. So, so essentially there's, there's, there's tests that you can do. It's kind of like, I would have, uh, I would, I would probably refer to like, uh, to, to get the coach involved with somebody that really knows how to assess because you can just rapidly assess and you can, and then you can start to categorize kids. Hey, these kids over here, they don't have hip IR. These kids over here don't have hip ER. Then you can really start to address because, you know, at the end of the day, I really think that the ability to move, um, is, 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 is critically important. Um, and that's, what's going to create, you know, if you look at what movement is, it's the ability to adapt, right? So if these kids can continue to adapt and you can maintain that adaptability, they're going to be a much better wrestler. The thing that I fear for, for kids, because unfortunately I've seen this multiple times is the kid starts to specialize in wrestling, right? And what happens is function determines structure. So then as they get better at, at the functioning of wrestling, the structure of the bones start to mold that way. And that's what you don't want. So that's the reason why you see, you know, I'm sure Tom's probably talked about it or Lou's probably talked about the conjugate sequencing system with Westside. Essentially, you're trying to do a lot of GPP, right? And so, so my whole thing on, on, on is if a kid is experiencing joint pain, like there's something wrong with that joint because all dysfunctional joints are painful. So at that point in time, and, you know, a lot of people will blame muscles or all, but realistically, it's the function of the joint. So something to look out for is just joint pain and joint discomfort, because, you know, you should be able to move pain-free. I mean, that's what a normal joint feels like. That's great and very practical. Excellent. And now seeing how young kids start playing sports, like they probably start playing whatever, t-ball, soccer, when they're four or five years old. Some of the kids maybe start specializing when they're in fifth grade, which I think is way too young, but let's just say they do that. Or even if they don't, is there a certain age that you would recommend that the athletes get checked out? Like the parents just, Hey, just get, just get checked by, by a physical therapist or someone who would, who would they go to? And around what age would you have them do that? If you would do that at all? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's something that I would definitely have them do for sure. And I would, I would start them. I mean, you know, I'm biased because obviously I'm a therapist and I, I find this data to be extremely valuable. Uh, and we can get into why later, but essentially this data is extremely valuable for the sustainability of the kid. Um, but I would start really young, honestly, I would start. So like, think about it. Like if they're able to start to play sports or organized activities, then maybe that they, you should start getting them assessed because who knows you could have, like, like the, the fear is right. This is the fear that I have for a lot of kids that I've assessed over the years that maybe I haven't done a good job of articulating to the parents, right. Is like, I don't want a kid to not, let's say have a shoulder joint and learn how to play baseball because I mean, that's just going to like, that's not, that's a recipe for, right. So essentially what you're trying to do is think of the nervous system as a, as a system that can kind of organize joints, connective tissue and muscle. And you want that nervous system to have the correct, you know, joint function so that it organizes it in an optimal manner, instead of essentially getting, you know, distortion of the joint dysfunction, 
compensation, all that other stuff, because I really think that, you, you know, and this is how Westside is that, you know, training is a mechanism used to specifically increase the capacity of the athlete, not pull from it. Right. So, so yeah, I would say to answer the question, as soon as someone can start to play organized activities, you know, have them get you know, just, and it can start with just the spine, the shoulders and the hips where you're just looking to see, Hey, does the shoulder, is the shoulder in a state of function is the hip in a state. And then, you know, because after the assessment, you can essentially, the assessment is just an algorithm that tells you what to do. Right. Right now, should it be a person with a certain kind of specialization? Who should they go to? Is there certain initials we should be looking for? Anything like that? Yeah, so I would say, so I work for, like I said, functional anatomy seminars, uh, and we teach a course called functional range assessment. So I would go on to functional range anatomy seminars.com. Uh, it's kind of wordy, uh, but then you can find an FRA provider near you. And then essentially you would just send your kid in for an FRA. I mean, they can be done essentially over the internet too. Now with, you know, the pandemic, it's obviously, it's changed how everybody works. So, you know, I know me and several uh, individuals that I'm in business with, you know, we, we, we run it through the internet as well. So you, it's something that you can even reach out to a provider, have them go through the internet. But uh, I think the reason why, um, and, and, Unfortunately, I haven't been able to listen to you or Tom's conversation, but, you know, Tom and I work in conjunction with each other because uh, and one of the reasons why that's been so successful is because it's the same thing. We're essentially clearing blind spots, right? So like if I, if I know I have a guy that has a lumbar spine dysfunction, we're probably going to totally change the exercise selection of that person so that once again, you know, you got a dysfunctional spine and you're doing, you know, uh, exercises that require spine function and it, they're compensating somewhere else. So that's why we kind of piggyback off of each other and use each other in conjunction. And then when we get clearance through treatment and assessment that, Hey, we've moved this joint from a state of dysfunction into a state of function. Now we can start to push training and whatever, uh, movements that you want. But at the end of the day, I don't know that training has to be, you know, for the, for, for youth kids, I don't know that has to be that complicated. I think, uh, you know, because we're dealing with uh, professional athletes or high level collegiate athletes, right? But when you're talking about kids, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they need to be able to maintain, you know, the health of their joints and just essentially get their nervous system to experience with really good moving parts. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So we would be looking for functional range, someone who is specialized in that, you know, and then, and then have them evaluated probably as soon as they start playing sports would you have them because I think about it selfishly for myself I have a two-year-old son eventually he's going to start playing sports we're starting with a blank slate what are the best practices for him if he starts playing soccer at five he gets maybe gets evaluated and then maybe again at seven just hey let's like you have a checkup with the doctor and the dentist why wouldn't you do that with the physical therapist yeah how how you see it yeah, hundred percent. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I always kind of, you know, I've had to do a lot of research working in, in continuing education. So I extensively researched the conjugate sequencing system, which is essentially that's, that's the Soviet system, right. That everybody talks about that essentially led to Soviet dominance in sports. That's, that's well-documented. That's essentially the system that Lou has brought into the West. That's absolutely obliterated 
all powerlifting records, right? So if we look at if we look at what the Soviets did, it's interesting. You know, they were so big on GPP, and for people that maybe don't know what that is, it's just general physical preparedness, right? And the whole belief was they didn't want to specialize a kid until they kind of knew more about that kid, right? So the the beautiful part about this is essentially GPP is like think of like sled drags, body weight stuff, just general stuff that you're you're not trying to get that kid to specialize. You want to maintain the structure of their bones. So you don't want their, their shoulder to start get distorted because you got a five-year-old that's just playing baseball. Like he's a major league pitcher. Essentially sustain the function of the athlete. Until, you know, you start to get later into, into life, let's say 13, 15, because you don't know, you, you know, your kid could be two years old. I mean, he could hit a crazy growth spurt. You don't know what that kid's going to be. So you don't really want them to specialize into something that that may not pan out to be, right? So the Soviets would always essentially be like around that 13 age, right? When they're hitting puberty, you would maybe start to see like, hey, this kid's gonna be a really good wrestler. Let's start to maintain this GPP in parallel with more SPP or specialized training for that individual. Right, that yeah. makes sense. And yeah, I so to answer your question, yeah, I mean like a yearly, a, yeah, like a yearly thing would be good. And then it's the same thing, it would be as needed. So it's not something that you wanna become reliant upon, right? Like if there's no joint dysfunction, then, then yeah, I mean, just continue to do what you're doing. Uh, you know, we have things built in on the back end, these things called controlled articular rotations. I think those would be good to teach the kid, right? Like that's, that's essentially what I would do. But once again, it's really no specialized stuff until, until that athlete is, is their structure is fully mature. Once it's fully mature, you can start to hammer the gas and, and you're going to probably uh, start to see spikes in performance that, uh, or emergences that are, that are off the chart. And that's what you want because that's what creates sustainability. Like a lot of kids can be really good in high school, right? Because they specialize when they're in middle school, but then the kids that then specialize that then figure out how to specialize with much better structure, much, much better musculoskeletal system, obviously they're going to make it much longer. That makes sense. Now, is this something people could get certified in or is it just stick with the specialist? Like don't waste your time. It's too much. It's too in depth. Just go to specialist. Yeah. So this is something that, uh, so, um, so in functional anatomy seminars, there's essentially like, it's called functional range conditioning. So there's multiple components. It's, it's kind of growing into a much more complex system. So it kind of depends on what you want. So for instance, like think of functional range conditioning as essentially like it started off as mobility training to try to get more mobility, but now it's essentially emerged into something where it's like, we're trying to maintain the health of your joints and then layer on performance. So one of the things that we're in the process of getting done with is working on a strength course, an internal strength course that goes along with that. Now we have a manual therapy side of it too, functional range release. And then that specializes in upper extremity, lower extremity, spine, and then the assessment course. And then in parallel with that, we also have what's called kin stretch. And kin stretch is kind of like, that's your GPP. So my wife is a kin stretch instructor. So, so, and, and, uh, and we're here in Columbus. So she teaches that, I don't know if you know who Matt Brown is, uh, yeah. UFC fighter. Okay. So he's a longtime West side guy, uh, been real good friends and been able to work with him for uh, a really long time too. So he has a facility and he's the one that actually uh, wanted us to start to, wanted one of my wife to start to teach kin stretch 
So kin stretch is like a, a really good movement based practice. But once again, like kind of all of this stuff, it starts off as general and then goes to specific instead of just really specific stuff where, where I think that's where people get really caught up in. There's a lot of research that's, that's coming out into this too. Multiple, uh, multiple books have been written on this early specialization of kids. Cause like I said, the function determines the structure. So, so as soon as the joint, you know, like think about it when you're throwing a, a baseball, that's not really a natural movement to that's like, it's natural. You can do it, but you're not supposed to do it repeatedly with a high frequency, high duration, all this stuff. Right. So that's going to start to distort joint function. So, you know, you know, if I had a kid or, or when I have a kid, I'm not going to want them to specialize, you know, until you're 12, 13, right. Because I want to one, figure out what they like to do, but then two, as I don't want to allocate all of these resources to trying to get them to specialize when they're five, when who knows what's going to happen, what sports going to come about, or, you know, like we have lacrosse here. We lacrosse wasn't big until several years ago. So you just don't know the opportunities that the kids are going to have. And that's why I think it's good to just generalize them. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think about, cause if, if kids aren't thinking about this at a young age or if parents or coaches aren't thinking about it, then the kids done with sports, let's say usually at best, even if they're a very good athlete, maybe 22, 23 years old and they're done unless they're pro or, you know, something like that. And now I think about myself, my shoulders never quite the same. I was done with wrestling at 22. My brother just went in to get knee surgery because of running, but it's not because of running. It's because of years of wrestling where that didn't get, get taken care of. My other brother, lower back problems. So it's like, if you're not doing this ahead of time, you're going to spend, spend basically the rest of your life making up for it. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you guys. So, so unfortunately, like I didn't learn about this stuff, you know, until after I got done competing in bodybuilding. So it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that I didn't know that information prior, but now that's the reason why I spend essentially my life is essentially trying to like reverse this. So even my training aspect of it, you know, I do kin stretch with with Matt, my wife, I do, uh, I do internal based training more than I actually do external based training for, and, and that's hard because, you know, I'm a bodybuilder at heart. So it's like, you know, you're a wrestler. So like, well, I don't know. I grew up wrestling too. I don't have the gas tank to do that anymore, you know, but I enjoy lifting weights, but in order for me to lift weights, unfortunately, you know, I have to do all this other stuff to maintain the health of my joints Cause if I get so good at a bench press, I'm going to like, that's not what my shoulders designed to do. So eventually that bench press is going to, it's going to take me out. I'm not going to be able to do what I love to do. And, and so that's the reason why I invest so much time and, and resources in doing the training and treatment that I do. That makes sense. Makes sense. And then, so then I get, ask more of the practical questions. What are some of the major problems that you see wrestlers tend to have as a whole, generally speaking? Yeah, I think, I think, I really think, you know, like in powerlifting, they have the big three, you know, your bench, your deadlift and in, in, in your squat. And I think in wrestling, uh, you have to have really high function in the hip joint, in the shoulder joints and in the spine. Right. And what I, what do I mean by high function? I mean that like essentially, so earlier I touched on how all functioning joints behave the same. So essentially what happens is when you have, let's say a ball and socket joint, because that's essentially what the hip and the shoulder are. There's a little differences 
but it's not important. But essentially, a ball is supposed to rotate in that hip or in the socket. And when, when you get to end rotation, you should feel stretching in that hip. And if you don't, and that means that the joint capsule, the connective tissue that encapsulates that joint is behaving as a rate limiting tissue. And so it's doing its job. Well, what happens is if you start to rotate that hip joint, you get a pinch or you get a hard block. Well, now what's happening is you have a joint dysfunction, right? And what happens over time, as you get that hard block, obviously you'll develop bone growth, all this other stuff, but that range of motion continues to narrow. And as the wrestler's range of motion continues to narrow, his adaptability decreases, his ability to, to actually like express all the, everything that he has in him is now slowly starting to shrink on the back end. Now, the problem is, uh, so, so essentially I think for wrestling, you need to make sure that the hip has high function, the shoulder has high function and the spine has high function. As far as being able, there's no just joint dysfunction in there because what's going to happen is if you have a high functioning hip joint, now you're able to produce really dynamic motions. You have access to all of your glutes. You have access to all of your hip flexors, right? Whereas think about it, like if you have zero hip IR, right? Or hip internal, if that thing doesn't rotate at all, you're not using any of those muscles. So it's having to go down into your knee. It's having to go down into your back. So the thing that I would say is I would, I would, I would make sure that the, the hips, the spine and the shoulders, because those are where all the degrees of freedom are coming from or movement that's needed. And if you can essentially sustain that throughout that wrestler's career, then that wrestler is going to be in a lot better, a lot better opportunities to deal with the volatility that comes from wrestling. I mean, you may get violently taken in one way, that hip's got to rotate. If it doesn't rotate, boom, now you get rotation at the knee. There's an ACL, right? So I think that, I think that for the wrestler from a joint perspective, if they just are able to really focus on the shoulders, the hips and the spine, and be able to maintain that, it'll make them better at wrestling too. Because if, if I give you like, like, like you're, you're a wrestling coach. If I, if I tell you, Hey, I got a kid over here, everything's the same, but this kid over here, he's got all of this range of motion in his hips. He can control it. Right. And this kid over here has really shitty hips. Which one are you going to want to coach? You're going to want to want to coach, right? Which one would you want to be? You would want to be the kid with the hips. So I think that that's essentially where I would focus at is those three joints, because once those three joints are, are working, everything just seems to organize in a manner that's optimal for the athlete. And then we also know, um, especially Tom and I, from the data that we get in from the athletes in season, stuff like this, as soon as we start to see a, a retraction of that range of motion, accommodation or performance will start to stagnate and set in. Right. And what specific exercises or prehab or band work, what would you tell the wrestler to do concretely to prevent this? Yeah. So to, to, so we, we do uh, what I talked about was controlled articular rotation. So now you should be able to look those up and find them almost, uh, almost anywhere like on Instagram or whatever uh, platform that you use, but essentially what a controlled articular rotation does is it takes, uh, uh, it takes your joint through its entire active range of motion. Right. And so we know that if you're doing these, think of it as almost like a linchpin. If you're doing these, you're not going to lose any range of motion, but you're also uploading information to the nervous system from this joint of all of its ranges of motion. That way it makes the athlete much more dynamic because they actually know how to navigate the internal parts of their body. Right. So that's something and it's going to maintain the health and function of your joints on the back end, too. 
And then we do these other things. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they're kind of hard to describe because when you're doing this stuff, there's not like, unfortunately, it's not like, oh, do a squat, right? But but um, I should have these uh, posted online on, on, on my Instagram, or I'm sure Westside Barbell does uh, as well. But essentially, I, we call them capsular cars, where essentially you're just creating rotation at this level, right? And it doesn't seem like much, but essentially you're getting that rotational tissue in the joint to start to be able to acquire length, come back from length. And you have what, what are called mechanoreceptors. And these are quite important. Uh, there's a lot of literature that's coming out on how, how important they are. But essentially, that's where the majority of your mechanoreceptors are. So think of a mechanoreceptor as like as it gets deformed by mechanical force. It, says, it sends an impulse to the nervous system to tell you where you are at in space, right? So what you're trying to do with this is you're trying to upload that information to the, to the cortex of that athlete's brain so that they know how to control that articulation at its absolute end range. And you're trying to amplify that process. So, you know, you know, so that essentially the athlete can respond and navigate their internal components much better to then, you know, start to compress time against whatever athlete they're going against to, to really leverage it and, and be the one that's dictating the, the wrestling match compared to the one that's getting it dictated to them. It makes sense. And now when, you, when we look up those exercises on YouTube, do we just type in for the spine, for the hips, for the, for the knees, and that'll have, or the shoulders rather, and that'll, that'll direct us what we should be doing? Yeah, yeah. And then if there's coaches, uh, we work with a lot of coaches. So if a coach wants to take the course, it's just functional range conditioning. And that goes in depth of other components of the system, not just the controlled articular rotations. But yeah, um, yeah, they should be online. It's the system itself is starting to really get some exponential growth. So it should be all over uh, the internet. I would say this though, to uh, we don't really know who's posting what. So I would kind of go to maybe like, you know, the, 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 the main guys of functional range is, is Dr. Andreo Spina and Dr. Uh, Michael Chivers. And, and those are the guys that I would kind of look to and then essentially who they follow that's kind of who I would follow because at this point I want to say that there's probably about 15,000 people globally certified in it. And there's just quality control issues like anything else. So, it so if you want, West. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you want, you know, more signal than noise, I would start at the top and work, work your way down from there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then now some, some more specifics. And I think also in terms of things that I've struggled with now, I know my, my like just shoulder overall mobility, not being able to touch. You grow up, you're able to touch behind your back like that. Then you can't. Is it possible to get that back? Are you able to get it to the point where your hands can touch again? Or is it now dangerous at that point because maybe your body has grown differently? So now you can doing that would be harmful. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the way that the way I see it um, is, yeah, you can 100 percent adapt that tissue it's got to be quite specific. I mean, it would probably be more treatment based, um, but there's definitely stuff that, that you can do uh, to start to get more rotation. So the test that you're talking about, I know people may not be able to see us, but essentially that's what you're, you're trying to test for external rotation, internal rotation, right? So once again, you can see it's, a, it's essentially an assessment to see, hey, do these shoulders rotate relative to the shoulder blade? So does the arm bone, is it, can it rotate independently of the shoulder blade or does the shoulder blade come along for the ride? 
right? And so essentially we know that if the shoulder blade starts to come along for the ride, that the tissue that's restricted is at the joint capsule level. So what that would immediately tell us is, hey, this tissue, we need to start to actually start to train and treat this tissue so that it can start to establish length. And then as it establishes more length, you'll establish more range of motion. As that range of motion increases, then essentially what happens is you'll be able to then start to acquire that rotation back. So yeah, I mean, rotation is definitely something to, to directly answer your question. Yes, I would 100% try to reestablish that rotation. Two, it can be done. It's going to require a training process of doing it. And, and, and three, I think that if, if, if you can get to that state, you're going to be able to have significantly more, uh, you're, you're going to be able to do a lot more stuff because you'll have functioning shoulder joints instead of the, the restriction that, that, that you're having. Oh, yeah. And, and everyone always says, oh, you walk like a wrestler. That's well, how do wrestlers walk? And I guess it's because our shoulders are coming forward. So our head's going down a little bit. Maybe our hands are turned backwards like an ape. But even basic things where, you know, you're reaching for something that's high, you know, your shoulders are already feeling it as soon as they go above your head. We're doing those basic wall slides, not being able to keep your arms all the way back. It does. It does hinder your quality of life. Yeah, for sure. So, 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 so yeah, that's where the inflection point starts to come, right? Because like, think about it. Like, that's why like the reverse hyper for an athlete is going to be so good for a wrestler, but like, think about what a wrestler is doing. Like, like you guys are essentially trying to like engulf the other the mold to the, to the other person. So you're going to have a lot of spine flexion, right? But when you look at the lumbar spine, what protects the lumbar spine is extension, not flexion. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, so you, you need something to like hedge or protect yourself against the specialization that's happening. Right. And so that's the reason why, like, you know, if you're, if you're a young kid, one of the best things that you can learn how to do is a reverse hyper with no weight, because then you're starting to get that hip extension that, that you say you're, so when you say like, Oh, you walk like a wrestler, essentially what they're saying is like, you, you have restriction in the lumbopelvic hip complex because of the specialization. Now, here's the interesting part. If you didn't have that specialization, you wouldn't have got to the level of wrestling that you had. So there has to be some sort of trade-off. The, the trade-off is, hey, let's just not lose range of motion in the joint. Right. You, you see what I'm saying? So, Absolutely. so, so that's where it's weird. It's the same thing, you know, like, like I've had that discussion with Matt Brown because he's a striker in the UFC, right? Well, like he's got this kyphosis and he's like, I don't want this, but that's what makes you a, such a good striker. So it's something where that, that's a trade-off that you have to make uh, to where you're like, yeah, I mean, part of the sport, the, the, the toll to play the game is you're going to start to distort the spine like that. But essentially, so when you say, hey, I go to lift up and I get this pain here, see it, that pain on the top of the joint, that shows you that there's not enough space in the back of that joint for the ball to rotate. And so instead of you should get a stretch back here, but instead of feeling that block here, essentially what that's showing is if that block isn't resolved over time, that's going to lead to more degeneration of your shoulder because there's just not a lot of space in that joint. And that's one of the things that, that optimal internal base training will take care of. Yeah. And that's why I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound to cure, right? So it's, I think in terms of those prehab exercises and everything that you recommended, how often should a wrestler and even forget a wrestler, how often should an athlete 
who is specializing in a sport be thinking about doing those exercises? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, it's going to depend, but I try to, uh, to, to, to be as specific as possible in answering your question. What I do is I take the volume of training, right? So I just look at like the raw data, right? And I go, Hey, this kid's wrestling five days a week, or they're playing whatever sport five days a week. Well, if they're playing a sport five days a week, like you're looking at like two to three days a week of doing stuff, right? That volume of training has to be high. The way that I have it set up, my, my training partner is a, is a pro bodybuilder. And so, and I, and I do the programming for all of his training. And so essentially what I do is it's literally, if he, he's going to, uh, he's going to be in the weight room lifting three to four days a week, four at most. Well, he's doing internal based strength training three days a week. So you can see the ratio is literally almost a 50, 50, right? Because, because essentially what happens is like, think about it from like a bodybuilder perspective. Like, like I know that bodybuilding is all about like acquiring more muscle tissue, but if you want to acquire more muscle tissue, your joints got to be able to reach end range. Cause if not, you're not training any of that tissue. Right. So that's the reason why essentially, and we're worried about the health of him. If he can maintain the health of his career, he can acquire a lot more money through winning contests because, right. But if he's not running that system, right. Essentially like, you know, look at someone like Ronnie Coleman, you know, who was like, he did nothing for his joint. Well, look at what's injured, like total hip replacements, multiple ones, look at all of his spine, all the, like, those are all joint based issues. Cause he wasn't running a, uh, a system on the, on the back end to make sure that that stuff wasn't happening. So that's one of the things, one of the good parts uh, about the pandemic is uh, one of my business partners out in California, uh, his name is Brian Fox. He's also another FR provider. And we've done work with uh, several athletes uh, that are on the West Coast. Uh, we've worked in conjunction with each other before. And we started an online training business uh, that's essentially called Gain Access. And that's what it is. It's training the big three, but you can essentially do it at your house. So I guess to really answer the question, like, because I know it seems like I'm not answering the question because it's like so specific, but, it's broad, but, but it's a broad, but when you think of it specific, but it's also very broad because I'm like wrestlers and athletes in general and how much are they specializing? How serious, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So essentially we created that and, and it's been a real blessing because essentially each week what comes out is we'll train, um, you know, I don't know how in depth you want me, but like the conjugate sequencing system is essentially about training multiple things at the same time to create cumulative multifaceted effects. Right. Well, that's what we're doing, but at the internal level. So like, so like, you know, if you sign up for that subscription, essentially the first five weeks is going to be training that hip joint. So that hip joint gets more rotation because it's not good enough. Like when you're talking about trying to get at, uh, adaptation to occur at the connective tissue level, you can't just unfortunately just train it like two weeks. It's got to be a longer duration because connective tissue adapts at a much slower time rate. That's the reason why connective tissue injuries are so much higher than muscle, muscle issues. So essentially, like we have a platform to where it's supposed to be user friendly. So the athletes that I manage, they're just on there. And then I know exactly where they're at on the program. So and we have those athletes anywhere between one to three days per week doing that, doing that type of training. And I think, and from, from that standpoint, that's really helped us be able to mitigate injury in the, in the athletes that, that we're working with, but also increase performance. Best to do before practice, after practice? 
Yeah. So, day of practice. <laughs> so I would do it on a different day of practice or, or uh, actually before practice, because when you start to think about it, like when someone's practicing something, right, they're doing something very specific. They're trying to acquire a new skill, but skills require like prerequisites, right? So like a prerequisite to being a really good wrestler is going to be having a really good hip joint. So if we know that you have a dysfunctional hip joint, right, but you're trying to wrestle, we're probably going to have you do your hip joint training first, then wrestle so that now you have an actual hip joint to then learn how to wrestle with instead of the inverse. So it kind of depends on where the athlete's at. But the majority of time, I really think that it should be done in parallel. So just like if you look at West Side System, they're going to train max effort in conjunction with dynamic effort. I think that essentially internal strength training should be done in conjunction with external strength training or sport, because once again, sport's going to start to distort how that joint functions. Right. Right. So as, as a rough rule of thumb, if they're lifting weights three days a week, three, three days a week of joint work or four days, a week, roughly. Yeah. That's, I try to match the volume at a one-to-one ratio. Okay. So yes. So, so that's what I do personally myself. And, and that's also what I have the guys that I work with do as well. I think it's the best results, but listen, if you're doing none, if you're doing none, right. One is better than anything. (laughs) Right. So, so it all depends on, you know, how serious you are about your training and and how far you're, you're looking to enhance your performance and where you're looking to, to take it. Right. And how much time should the joint work be about a half hour, hour, yeah. So one of the other things that, that we've done, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in teaching continuing education and, and then also being a practitioner, right. is like, there's an infinite amount of stuff that you can do. Right. So a lot of it is trying to reduce the noise, reduce the complexity and just send the signal of what you need. So that's the reason why the other thing that we did uh, in regards to uh, gain access is essentially the training is anywhere between like 15 to 20 minutes. So, because we have to have these athletes doing it, right? So like, if I give you like, hey, do an hour of yoga. Well, first off, yoga isn't going to get what you want. That's another whole, that's another sport in and of itself. And that's another hour of your time that you, that, that you don't have, right? So that's the reason why we really tried to compress it. So essentially like the athlete gets on there, they hit play, they go through the 15 to 20 minutes, boom, you're ready to go. So we're trying to really compress the time so that the athlete is going to be compliant with it, but also so that we're removing anything that isn't going to induce the adaptations that we want. That's great. And that's on your website. Yeah. So that, that website, it's called gain access uh, with one S because you're trying to gain access to more tissue, more range of motion. Right. But yeah. So, that, and, and then there's multiple programs on there, but, but yeah, that's what I would have. At, that's, that is, that is the intent of having it be that way is essentially I had training partners that moved away. They still needed the training so that their joint stayed in function. Right. So that's kind of that plus COVID is the genesis of, of the website. Right. Well, that's, that's taking, taking lemons and making that lemonade right there. That's it. Right. Yeah. That's what you got to do. Oh, that's, that, that's awesome stuff. And it's, it's amazing just how many athletes don't think about this at all. And they're not thinking about number, number one, it's going to help you. Even if you didn't care about how you're going to live when you're 22 and beyond, although I don't know why you wouldn't care about that. But even if you're just thinking about the moment, you're going to have better performance results if you could move better. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying is, you know, I'm not a sport coach, right? So that's not my circle of competency at all. I just really, I just assess what this individual can and can't do, right? But like, I think that's one of the main reasons why, like, like if an athlete is able to run this training, essentially like their coach is able to coach them better because someone may not be able to learn a skill because they can't, they don't, like they don't have a hip. So you're trying to teach them something that has a hip and they're like, and the coach is going to get frustrated. Right. Instead, listen, like, you know, my, my wife, you know, we'll go to the gym and work out and she'll be like, Hey, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. She's like, I'm like, Oh yeah, it's a great exercise. Well, why don't you do it? It's like, well, because my joints can't do it. Right. Like, so I think a lot of times what you have is, is, is the, the air in coaching is you're trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. Right. And I think a lot of times it's frustrating for both the coach and the kid, but it may be just an issue where, listen, the kid's got a dysfunctional spine and they're trying, like, it doesn't matter what coaching cue you give them, the structure of their spine, right? Like it's, it's in a state of dysfunction. So you need to start to do work to start to move it into that state. And then eventually once that kid can get to there, because kids are much more pliable than adults in response to this training, right? that once they're there, then all of a sudden the coach becomes an all-star. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it just as, as you're speaking, I guess one of the things that pops into my head, maybe because word choice is very important, right? The words that we use, I've been calling it prehab and rehab, and maybe I'm thinking now, maybe just scrap that whole thing and just your joint training, you're training your joints. It's just an aspect of your strength training. So yeah. Had a better uh-huh. way to look at it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, yeah, you've evolved to that term a lot quicker than I did. But yeah, I mean, eventually, like, like, essentially, like, you know, the first part of my career was kind of like, okay, prehab, rehab. And then you kind of figured out that, like, well, the high level athletes can't get away without doing this. So now that's essentially training. Right. right. So and so that's the reason why then we kind of moved from, you know, training to now like internal training and, and think of it this way, like, Um, how I view like external training versus internal training, right. Is, you know, um, essentially you're performing work. Like when you're doing something external, right. You're, you're essentially using force to manipulate your external environment to do a predetermined task. So like an external thing was like, if, if, if you go to take me down, it probably won't be hard. Right. But you would, but you're trying to use all of your force to then take me down into a predetermined way. So that's going to affect when we look at like, well, where's that going to elicit adaptation at? Well, it's going to affect the external environment a lot more than, than, than the internal environment. So then what happens is of what, well, what if we focus all of your efforts on your shoulder joint capsule? Okay. Well now what's happening is all of that force, right. Is now getting propagated into the system to make your shoulder better. And then by making your shoulder better, you'll be able to organize your shoulder better to then take me down. Right. So, so that's where it's kind of like, it's still in this weird stage. You got there a lot faster than most people, but, but yeah, instead of prehab rehab, it's essentially you're trying to train your joints or the internal components of your system. So that when you wrestle or whatever you do, you have really good organization that happens so then the, the emergent behavior is very good. And then you just try to upregulate that on the back end. You use that joint training to sustain this, the structural system so that those emergences can continue to emerge time and time again. And that's essentially what leads to elite level performance from a physical perspective. That, that makes a lot of sense. 
all the stuff's great. And I'm going to basically, I'm just going to watch this probably several dozen times over and over because you're dropping gold here and it's, you know, I'm trying to get it all to process, but it, it, it's phenomenal. So I'm thinking on your site, that's the best place to go for most, like just any athlete go there and then they, and then they have the joint training program, basically. Do I understand that right? Yeah. So essentially it's a subscription. So each month, what happens is we set it up just like I'm sure Tom may have mentioned they have the conjugate club for Westside. Well, we have essentially gain access. And what gain access is, is each week you get your the internal training for that joint program to you. It's in a video plus a description so that it's real user friendly. You can do it wherever you want. You don't need any equipment. Essentially, you, uh, my business partner, Brian Fox, he essentially coaches you through it on the back end. I do all the programming. So I deal with kind of the frequency, the volume, the intensity, all that stuff so that we're eliciting or we're, we're going to try to really elicit adaptation that we want uh, in the connective tissue, the joint workspace. And then also what, what type of muscle fiber we're recruiting to do that work, whether it's fast switch or slow twitch. That's one of the issues that I kind of see in training now is everyone's more fast switch dominant and they don't think that they need that slow twitch fiber. So, but you got to figure the slow twitch fibers right? That's what's really protecting your joint. That's why we do, we, we essentially combine or work in parallel slow twitch in conjunction with fast twitch. So yeah, I, I would say right now, um, you know, I'm so focused on that. And then uh, essentially releasing this other seminar that I don't really know what's out there in the market. But, but yeah, I would say that. And then if you're a coach and you want more, more information, feel free to reach out to me or even take the functional range uh, conditioning course. And that's going to give you a, a huge background to maybe start to get people to think more about uh, the individual instead of what the individual is producing. Right. Uh, that's, that's awesome. And then any athlete can follow that protocol, or if you had a wrestler, you would have them follow a different protocol. I mean, of course it's a general thing, right? If you're working with an individual, it's going to be highly specific. So, but if you're just generally speaking, a wrestler could do this and that's yeah. Yeah. So, it, so, so I designed it, like I said, I've had to do like a lot of research on conjugate sequencing system, all this stuff. Right. So, so the, the goal of the system is so that anyone can take that training and run it in parallel with whatever they're doing. So you could be a golfer, you could be a wrestler, you could be uh, someone who sits on the couch. It doesn't matter. Right. But essentially what that training has done because uh, I won't get into it too much, but essentially like what I see in having to work with a lot of strength coaches, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of athletes is when you start to look at all the work that they're doing, not all the work, they're doing a lot of work, but they may not be going anywhere they need to be, if that makes sense. So, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to create an internal, essentially a way so that the athlete could get exactly what they need to do without changing any of the other stuff so that it adds to them instead of being like, Hey, do this class. It's going to take an hour, go do Pilates, uh, like all these alternatives that they're not like, it's good to give like filter, but like, like you don't want to get better at yoga. You want to get a better hip joint. So do this training, get a better hip joint. That'll make you a better wrestler instead of getting better at yoga may actually make you a worse wrestler. Right. Exactly. Right? Been, yeah. So, so that's essentially the reason why we tried to, the thing of the program is really trying to constrain it so that it's literally only what the athlete needs, nothing more. And then they can run that in parallel with whatever other program they're on or whatever other sport that they're on. That's phenomenal. Excellent. Really great. Yeah. 
any, well, basically anything else that I missed or anything else that you wanted to hit on? I know you have your wealth of information. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up or anything, any roads that we went down that you wanted to go into more detail? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, I hope that I was able to, to, to maybe give some insight into like uh, what I see, right? And, and, and you know, hopefully uh, help the, the actual active participant in the sport. Uh, you know, so hopefully, you know, a lot of young wrestlers and really any, any, any athletes listen to this and maybe start to get them to think, you know, uh, more about how they're spending their time doing their training and then also, you know, what, what that training is leading to is it, is it actually, you know, are you just getting better at doing a squat? Are you getting a better hip joint? Like, are you running these things in parallel? But no, I mean, that, that's kind of all I had to, all I had to uh, say, I guess. Awesome, John. Phenomenal. And I'm really getting me to think about all this from a different perspective too. So it's, it's tremendously helpful. One, one, five, one more question for you popped into my head. And it, not to put you on the spot, I do hundreds of these shows. You have the best eye contact of anyone that's ever been on the show. What are you doing for looking at the camera here? Oh, I just have it. Uh, well, it's probably because I do. So my, my business partner is out in California, so I'm always having to stare at the screens. And, and now a lot of athletes that I work with because I can't travel as much. So it's probably due to that. Uh, but I wasn't aware of it. So thanks for making me aware of it so that uh, – Hundreds of these presentations that I do. And, and like the whole time you're talking, I'm like, right, I'm right there with you. I feel like you're looking right at me. And I said, man, not only can I learn from this, but anyone else who watches can learn from that too. So it's a big deal. Okay. Well, that's good to know, man. I appreciate that feedback. Great stuff, John. Thank you very much. And we'll send, make sure we send people your way. We'll um, timestamp the show and we'll throw the links to everything that you said in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.